Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Selena Kopik. I turn to the two hockey players. I sit on my desk, I light a cigarette, and I'm like, I'm sorry you had to see that. <laughs> that and more. But before that, let me just tell you folks something. This right now is the most important time of year for us at risk and for all Maximum Fun shows because, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for the Max Fun Drive. Just once a year, for only two weeks, we do the big Max Fun Drive. You go to MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Now listen, you hear me say, on every episode that although we do make some money from advertisers, the primary source that we rely on to keep the New York show, the LA show, the tour shows running, to pay our episode editor and three producers, to mount our workshops and support our interns and part-time staff, to pay our vendors, and to keep a roof over my head, the primary source we rely on for all of that is you the people who love what we do. Look, there is a reason that Risk feels different from other shows. It is the time and energy that we pour into seeking storytellers and giving those people the moral support and the guidance that they need to bear their personal experience so bravely. We believe in what we're doing with great passion, and we know you do too. So we're proud to be supported by our listeners, and you can help keep Risk running by becoming a Maximum Fun monthly member. You can donate at a wide range of levels from $5, $10, $20, $35 a month, all the way up to $200 a month. And of course, there's fabulous pledge gifts for all those levels, including bonus episodes of Risk. If you're already a monthly member, consider increasing your support during the pledge drive. If you upgrade your membership, you'll be eligible for all the same thank you gifts we're offering to new members this year. So go to MaximumFun.org and click on Donate, and be sure to earmark your donation for risk. The Max Fun Drive is just two weeks long, so jump on in there now, folks. That's MaximumFun.org slash Donate. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is comfort fit and port format behind me now we're calling today's episode gross stories where gross things happened or gross behavior came into play and as i was saying before this is the first 
of our two Max Fun Drive episodes for 2015. It's just once a year that our beloved network, MaximumFun.org, mounts this super fun couple of weeks where we feature some of our very best content and we give away tons of amazing prizes and never before heard bonus episodes of Risk and bonus episodes of every other Max Fun podcast as well. And we encourage you, the fans, to show your love and support for what we work so hard to do. You can help us reach our goal of 2,000 new and upgrading members and we have these wonderful challenge donators who are pledging a small amount of money for each new and upgrading member. So do it now, folks. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a new member or upgrade today. I can tell you this. The support we got from you guys in this drive last year was a lifesaver. It gave us the breathing room to take this show from great to greater. And the whole crisis I went through in 2014, where I had a massive bed bugs problem throughout the entire apartment building that I was living in, uh, in Brooklyn. And that caused me to have to throw out almost everything I owned, to have to tear down my recording booth and lose a lot of the recording equipment I had that got damaged during the move. That six month debacle could have derailed this show entirely. But it was your support from last year's Max Fun Drive that really kept us up and running. I'll talk more about the amazing pledge prizes that we have in a bit, but let's get to the stories now. First, we're going to feature three stories that were told at our last New York Live show. And our first storyteller was taking a particular risk in that he had never shared a true story on stage before. Here he is now. This is Travis Cook with a story we call Don't Judge a Book by its Sopping Wet Asshole. Hey guys. Are we feeling nervous? I'm feeling nervous. <laughs> Uh, which is sort of weird because I really only get nervous in front of women and I'm in love with my boss she's wonderful and I want to tell you about how I met her at the time I was in a long-distance relationship I live in New Haven she lived in Oakland this is not my boss another woman she was not great I was in love with her but she wasn't too into me and she was trying to figure out how to tell me that I could, shouldn't come to visit her so often and I was like feeling that and being like let me go visit you more I need to see you all the time so that I can feel good about like the fact that this is a relationship it's gonna work out and so as she was pulling away I started to realize like I better like get a move on and apply for a job in Oakland and so I did I applied for this job uh, I was teaching at the time but started working in data during the course of my interview, I ended up talking to this woman, Casey. And Casey, in our interview, it just sort of flowed. We had chemistry. She laughed at my jokes. She made jokes. I laughed at her jokes. They were funny. It was great. And so after the interview, I was like, all right, let's get on Facebook. Let's do some stalking. Let's see what she looks like. Turns out she's beautiful. She's like super petite, green eyes, just very much my type. And so it turns out it worked out really well. I got the job. 
as you might expect. I started working from Connecticut. So January of last year, I started working. About a month had gone by and I was just working remotely. So I hadn't actually met any of these people yet. And so the first month was just spent like me on the computer, like me on Skype, me on video chat, like all of these things by myself, like sort of boring, but you know, it worked out. And then February comes around and I fly out to Oakland. And I'm so excited because A, like, I'm gonna get to meet all these people, but mostly I'm gonna get to meet Casey. And I'm so excited about that. And so the first day comes and I fly across the country, I walk into the office, and she's sitting right there, and I can tell instantly because of the Facebook stalking. And uh, she like jumps up and gives me this big hug, and I'm like, all right, it's on, here we go. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm like glowing, right? And the first day sort of goes by, nothing, nothing too serious happens. Uh, clearly, she just met me. She's not crazy. Uh, but the second day comes around and our CEO decides, this is like also like a 15 person company. Our CEO decides that she's gonna let us out early. We're gonna get off at two and we're all gonna go to Alameda uh, to go wine tasting. So we go out there. I know the, f the fanciness of the startup world, right? Uh, so we all go out to Alameda, we start drinking wine and about 30 minutes in, I get a text message from a friend in Oakland and she's like, hey, let's go to dinner tonight. And I turned to Casey and I was like, hey, I'm going to dinner tonight, wanna to come? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, great, it's in, we're on. And I said those two things backwards. I regret what I just said. Uh, <laughs> I said, we're on, well, let, let's go with that one. Uh, um, and so a few minutes after that, I excuse myself to go to the restroom, as one does. And I'm starting to feel a little bit anxious. And I, as I walk in there, immediately it's just like, overcome with the feeling of vomit. And so I walk in and just start puking like blood red vomit into the trash can, luckily. A little bit on my shoes, I cleaned it up with paper towels. <laughs> Don't worry, no one knew. Um, I thought that that was weird. Because like, I hadn't been drinking that much. Like it was like two glasses of wine. I'm a lightweight, but like not that much. Also, I was feeling anxious, but not that anxious. And so I walk back to the table. I think to myself, we're good now, it's okay and you know, continue chit-chatting. About 20 minutes later, I realize I'm gonna vomit again. But in my head, I'm like, I can't excuse myself to go to the bathroom again. Someone will know. Someone will be like, he just went to the bathroom 20 minutes ago. I can't do that again. Um, and so I pretend to get a phone call. <laughs> As I go, hello, and I walk out of the room and then quickly run to the bathroom to vomit again. Come back to the table, feeling good. Things are sort of wrapping up at the wine tasting. Um, the vice president of our company is like, let me give you a ride back. Um, it's on the way to the restaurant that you and Casey are going to. I said, great. So we start walking in the car. A few people that I work with were like, let me get a ride too. Scott, the vice president, he has a Toyota Corolla. It's a very small car. And there are five of us in this car. And so as we're about to get in the car, I'm like, hold on. Let me just use the restroom before we leave. <laughs> so I walk back vomit again, come back to the car. At this point, I'm, I'm sure it's food poisoning. I'm positive, but who knows? So I walk back, we get in the car. I'm sitting in the back seat. Casey's sitting, bitch. And she, <laughs> so she's like, she's like right next to me. Like our hips are touching, you know, I'm feeling the energy, maybe, I don't know. Um, and so we start driving and we're, we, you know, we leave Alameda and we're driving by Lake Merritt, which is this big lake in Oakland. It's right across the street from our office. And I start to have that fleeting thought of like, what if I don't make it again? Like, what if I don't make it to a bathroom? What if I don't make it to this restaurant? And I'm like, no, 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 it's a mind game, Travis. You can do this, just focus. So I think harder and it starts to get worse and I start sweating. 
right? That feeling you get when you know you're going to throw up. And you're like, the only thing that you can think to do is like, maybe if I lay down, I'll feel better. <laughs> but when you're in a car, that's really not going to happen. And so I just like, I'm like the seatbelt is on my neck at this point. Like I'm like slouching in the car. We stop at this red light. We're in like one of those protected left turn lanes. And I realize like, it's, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And so I turned to Casey and I say, hey, listen, something really weird is about to happen. I just want you to go with it. And handed her my bag and step out of the car. <laughs> and so I get out of the car and it's one of those streets that has one of those like medians in the middle where like plants won't grow. Like it's just like dirt, which is perfect for this situation. And so I go over to, to that place and I just start vomiting. And that's not really too bad. Um, considering that I was also just shitting in my pants <laughs> at the same exact time. And I didn't know that that was coming. <laughs> and so I'm there, I'm in front of this girl that I love, and I have to try to figure out how to explain myself. And so... The guy who sort of like took me under his wing the previous day, Brandon was sitting shotgun and he got out of the car and he goes, hey, are you okay? Did you have too much to drink? And like, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, oh great. Now I'm that guy who like had too much to drink the first day of work, ugh. And so I say, no, I think I have food poisoning from the Thai food earlier. And he says, well, do you want to get back in the car? <laughs> And I'm facing away from him and the cars. Like, no one knows that, like, my butt is wet. <laughs> and so I say, no, I don't think I should because I just pooped in my pants. <laughs> and there's no, like, professional way to have that conversation. Luckily for me, Brandon, like, had had a child six months ago. And so he was like, fully prepared for that situation. So he's like, okay. What do you want to do? Do you want to go to dinner? And you should say no. You should say no to that. I didn't. Because I had set it up. If Casey was there. My friends were already waiting. I couldn't just like leave and like let them figure that out. Hey, I'm Casey. Ugh. So I said, yes, I do want to go to dinner. Uh, I think I'm feeling better. That's not true. But I said I was. Um, and so he said, great, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go home. It's like five minutes from here. I'm going to get some change of clothes for you. You can just wait here. I'll tell them you're feeling sick. And then I'll come back and you'll change and you and Casey will go to dinner. And so I say, great, that sounds great. And at this point, the car, you know, that everyone was in, like that had pulled away. And so they had turned around and I walk across the street to the curb and Casey rolls down the window and goes, hey, are you okay? And I say, no, I think I'm, I think I'm sick. And uh, she says, do you want me to wait with you? And I said, yes. <laughs> because like, I was nervous. What are you supposed to say? No, I just pooped in my pants. I said, yes. So she says, great. And she gets out of the car and we sit down on the curb together. Um, which is good. At least I'm not ruining anything like great. Like it's a curb. Who cares? Uh, so we sit down on the curb and she's like, hey, are you, are you feeling okay? And I said, no, I think I have food poisoning. And the entire time I'm thinking, she has to smell it. 
<laughs> There's no way that she can't smell it. And so I'm trying to pretend like nothing's going on. Like, I'm just sick. I'm not feeling so well. I threw up. And she looks over at me, and then her face sort of contorts a little bit. And I know that she knows, and she knows that I know that she knows. And so, like, I say, also, I pooped in my pants. <laughs> right? And again, like, she, what is she supposed to do in that situation? Like, I just, like, it's this guy that she just met. He's, like, dumping all this information. Like, not like, not, not like actual dump, but dumping. <laughs> dumping all this, like, information. So she laughs, which is great, because she has a super adorable laugh. And so that makes me laugh. And then I also, like, I'm one of those people who, like, pees in their pants a little bit when they laugh. And so, like, but this time it wasn't just pee. Uh, and so, like, I'm, like, just, like, sitting there for, like, ten minutes waiting for Brandon just, like, pooping in my pants. Um, and so Brandon shows up with, like, a trash bag and some wet wipes and a pants and boxers and a shirt. I don't know. Uh, but he shows up and we make it to dinner. I go to the bathroom to change and... I sit in the toilet and I poop one more time and I, I look back at it and it's like the before and after pictures of the toilet I swear to you were the same <laughs> I was pooping water <laughs> like that's how bad it was so that was about a year ago <laughs> and since then Casey has since been promoted she's now my boss uh, which is great uh, for this whole situation of me being in love with her. Um, and about a week and a half ago, she asked me if I wanted to go get drinks on a Sunday night. And I was like, hell yes. <laughs> and so I get on my bike. It's, I'm sorry for saying this, it's beautiful outside. It's like 60 degrees at night. I'm wearing this, just like cruising, no hands. It's so nice in Oakland. You guys should go. Um, and I get to the bar and I sit down. I'm first. And then she shows up with a guy. <laughs> and so she says, hey Travis, she gives me this big hug. And then she says, this is my friend, Forrest. And like, you know, you know that she didn't know if she wanted to say boyfriend, but I was crushed. But I spent the, the evening with them, we spent about an hour together, and he's awesome. He's gonna be a doctor, he's funny, he likes to travel. He's like very similar to me. And that's like <laughs> even more frustrating. And so I like just can't help but think like, why is it that she won't date me? Cause I'm wonderful and she's wonderful. And so the only thing that I can think of is that like old like workplace saying about not dating people you work with, which is don't shit where you eat. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that reminded me, I have a <laughs> You know that attitude that uh, people who are two or three years old have? Where it's like, ah, poop, ah! They kind of love it, and I think I never got past that. I think Freud would have some sort of term for it, but most people would just say idiot. Um, I, I fell in love with a boy in my freshman year of high school. I went to an all-boys high school, and there was this boy named David who was in the musical theater uh, you know, stuff with me and just 
so adorable. Such a sweet boy. Clearly straight. Uh, but he kind of looked like a teddy bear. He was that adorable. Without the fur. We were freshmen in high school. Um, <laughs> But anyway, I was so, it was embarrassing how in love I was with him and how obvious it always was. I was always kind of like teasing him in very flirtatious ways. So I think everyone knew what was going on. And I think he enjoyed the attention until it got to the point where it was like, oh, come on, that's a little weird because we're all supposed to be heterosexual, right? Um... Then one day at lunch, I guess I had teased him too much about how cute I thought he was. And so he started flicking these little, uh, what do you call it, spit wads at me across the lunch table. And he just kept flicking them and flicking them and flicking them like, you know, I hate you. I hate all your undue attention. And finally, I don't know why I did it, but I just blurted out, if you do that one more time, I will mail you my poop. And then I thought, hey, that's an idea. (laughs) And so I got home that night. I was like, come on, no one, he's not going to think I'm actually going to do it, so it'll surely be a terrific success. (laughs) I got one of my mom's Tupperware bowls and floated it in the toilet pooped into it and it was very considerable it was a very considerable um, thing and then I sealed it up and I was like how do I mail it okay well of course this was before (laughs) 9-11 it would even today it would be considered somewhat of an act of terrorism Um, anyway I put it in a shoe box And I was like, I've got to fool him, you know? I've got to, like, trick him out somehow. So on the top, I put in lovely handwriting, Hey, David, enjoy the cookies. (laughs) Well, a couple days went by for it to go through the mail, and then all I knew was that David did not want to talk to me. He was furious at me, and I felt so bad. I don't really know what I was thinking doing that because I had a huge crush on this guy. And it was only a couple days later that he finally told me, you know, we made made up again and he finally told me what happened. His mother was like, hey, he got home from school and his mom was like, hey, David, there's a package for you. And they sat down at the kitchen table, unwrapped it, and they're like, oh my God someone sent you cookies and he opened it up with his mother there and they were both so shocked like the smell was so like (laughs) that he went like went all over the kitchen floor and so years later my therapist asked uh, (laughs) she was like what what was that about? And I said, well, I guess it was like a very dramatic way to make an intimate gesture towards someone. She's like, I don't know. I don't know. She's like, let's maybe get to that later, if at all, again. All right, I'd like to bring our next storyteller onto the stage. Uh, she is also very new in the storytelling scene. She's done some workshops with us and here at the pit. She has done storytelling round about these parts, she said. Please welcome to the stage, Jamie Pinto! (laughs) 
When I was 9, 10, 11, I went through this rough patch that was directly caused by my mother. She had uh, recently split with my father, and she met this guy named Dave, who was really, you know, a nice guy. He was friendly, he like read to me, but he also was like a really heavy partier. And so he, pretty early in their relationship, fell off of a party boat and drowned in the Hackensack River. And so, and so my mom was completely inconsolable and became very depressed after this. And so it was decided that we would all move to California to have a fresh start with um, her brother. And so this really confused me because she was, you know, going through her own thing. And so she never really explained it to me. So even like as we were on the plane flying to California, I was like, well, is Dave going to swim the Hackensack River and meet us? And she's like, no, he's not coming. He's dead. And so I really didn't get it. When we got there really soon after, she met Dave number two. Now, Dave number two wasn't a bad guy. You know, he was kind of like a petty, he was a thief. He was like, into a little, <laughs> no serious crime, but he was arrested and spent some time in San Quentin. And um, my first trip to San Francisco was a conjugal plus one because my mother married him. Unbeknownst to us, though, was that he actually had had Hodgkin's disease and was in remission. But it had a reoccurrence, and he was released early. He came to our trailer park, and he promptly died. And so illness completely now confused me. My mom fell into a huge depression after this, and illness, to me, became something I fixated on. And she really didn't do anything to kind of explain it to me. So for a while there, I was like uh, trying to feel under my armpits, feeling on my neck, touching my little lumpy boobies, thinking that I had lumps and bumps and cancer. And she's like, no, you don't have cancer. So we went to the doctor and she's like, doctor said, no, you don't have cancer, but I became fixated on it. And so I kept thinking I had it. Eventually my mom met Dave number three. Now, now after Dave number three, they kind of took off and I went to my, my uncle's mistress's house to live. <laughs> Now, this woman's name was Cece, and she was this intimidating, huge presence, like this mannish, kind of oafish, obese woman that I was afraid of, and generally would stay away from. She had this huge California ranch-style house, and basically she had like tons of dogs in the backyard, like just, you know, like a kennel pretty much. And so she would like, you know, in the morning during the summer, listen, go outside and play, go outside and play. And so one day I was outside in the backyard and you know, she had a dachshund, she had a shepherd, she had a chihuahua, she had like all these kinds of dogs. And I could see the, the little dachshund, he's like laying on his side and he's rolling in the dirt. Cause in California they don't really have grass. So the dog is rolling in the dirt and he rolls over onto his side and he starts to poop and in his poop is like these worms coming out. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I was fascinated. So I started like poking the poop with a stick and looking at the worms. And so that night, like, you know, mulling it over and thinking about it, I went to sleep. And literally the next day, I became convinced that I had worms in my asshole. <laughs> and this. 
thought just kind of lodged itself right in my head and I was convinced that I had them. But you know, I didn't want to bother Cece and I decided to research this on my own. <laughs> I went to my library and you know, I don't know for those of you who have researched worms and parasites, there's all different kinds. There's the pinworm, the tapeworm, some worms you can get from dogs, some you can't, like, you know, heartworm you can't get. But the more I read, the more I was sure that I had worms in my asshole. And so I started talking about it to everyone. <laughs> so I was like, to the other kids, I was like, oh, you know, I think I got worms in my asshole. They're like, yeah, yeah, you probably do. <laughs> I, I got to the point where I had to say something to Cece. I was like, and it, you know, took all my courage. And I said, uh, Cece, I was wondering, um, I think I have worms in my asshole, and I was wondering if you could take a look and make sure I don't. And at first, you know, she was kind of amused. She's like, hey, kid, no. You know, <laughs> like a cigarette hanging. Kid, you don't got worms. And so I was like, no, but your dogs outside have worms. I can see them. And, you know, I kind of like make out with them and I'm playing with them. And I think I might have worms in my asshole. And she's like, kid, you don't have fucking worms. Leave me alone. And you know, she thought that that would be the end, right? She'd tell me I don't have worms. But no, that wasn't the end. Every single morning, I would knock on her door and like say, listen, can you take a look at my asshole? I really need you to take a look at my asshole. Can you please tell me I don't have worms? Can you take a look at my asshole? And so she's like, why do you think this? And, and she's like, does your asshole itch? And I'm like, no, it's not itchy. She's like, do you see worms in your shit? And I'm like, no, I don't see any worms in my shit. She's like, then kid, you don't have worms. But I just couldn't let it go. Finally, I, this had to have been like a month of me, you know, badgering her about the worms in my asshole. Um, <laughs> I decided, you know what? If she's not gonna help me, I'm gonna do for myself. <laughs> the, the problem is, is I'm really short and I couldn't reach any mirrors. So I was like trying to like bend over to kind of get a look. I hopped up on the sink to try to like lift my leg up to sort of spread my cheeks. And I just could not get the good, perfect view of my asshole to see if there was a worm coming out of it, which I was sure there was. So she got to the point where she was so pissed at me, so frustrated, that I could overhear her talking to my mother on the phone. And she's like, listen, I got to ask you something. You, my dogs have worms and your kids saw them and um, she thinks she has them. Would it be okay if I took a good look at her asshole? <laughs> to make sure she doesn't have them. And so, you know, I don't know how that conversation ended, but I'm assuming that she gave consent because Cece was like, listen, tomorrow morning before school, I'm gonna take a look at your asshole and I'm gonna make sure you don't have worms. And I was like, thank you. It was the most heartfelt thank you a kid of my age could ever have. So I ran to the garage and you know, I was already ready for this. I had like a, I had batteries. I had a flashlight. <laughs> I was just ready. And so I like slept with the flashlight. Like, like Christmas morning, I was up before her. I had the light ready. I was banging on the door. She's like, she was sleepy. She got up, she said, all right. So I was like, okay. I pulled down my pants. I bent over, pretty much hugging my ankles. 
she took the flashlight. She really like just kind of, I don't know what she was doing back there, but I, she was like doing the flashlight, so I think she looked. And she's like, listen, kid, you don't have worms. And the relief that I felt was so complete. And listen, she's not, I mean, this lady's no doctor. I don't even think she worked a day in her life. But, you know, I, I knew I'd be okay. I just needed someone to tell me. That reminded me of uh, the way that in grade school, kids would give such strange advice. Well, I actually had a teacher in the second grade who once gave us the most memorable piece of advice. She, she, it was just out of the blue. Our second grade teacher, Miss Enright, said to the whole class, hey guys, listen, don't ever do this. Never stick your fingers underneath your rib cage and yank out. <laughs> my entire life I've been horrified at the thought, oh my God, might I one day do that? You know, in my sleep, might I be like... <laughs> Um, but I remember also this kid, Matt, who went on to become like a staunch Republican, but he gave us, I think this was in the third grade on the playground, he gave us, because we learned about tapeworms. For some reason, we were looking at, you know, a little microscope images of tapeworms and things, and he was like, guys, I know how to deal with this. If you ever think you have a tapeworm, you just need a few days supply of glasses of water, oranges, and lemon cookies, and a hammer. And what you do is, every day after school, you have an orange, and then a glass of water, and then a lemon cookie. And then the next day, you have an orange, and a glass of water, and a lemon cookie. The next day, orange, glass of water, lemon cookie. But on the fourth day, you pull your pants down and you sit down on the ground and you have that hammer in your hand, right? And you have your orange and your glass of water and then you wait because that worm is going to be like, where's my lemon cookie? <laughs> and when he rears his head, you go, bam! <laughs> so, it might, you know, just in case you find yourself in that position. <laughs>
This is Risk, and this is Guster behind me now, sounding good as ever from their new album, Evermotion. I promised I'd let you all know a little bit more about all the prizes that people are getting from the 2015 Max Fun Drive, the pledge gifts. If you pledge $5 a month, you get the exclusive bonus content that includes two bonus episodes of Risk and then bonus episodes of all the other Max Fun podcasts. If you pledge $10 a month, you get the exclusive tote bag as well as the bonus content. $20 a month, the in-flight power pack, sort of a traveling kit that's a mobile device charger, a collapsible water bottle, antibacterial wipes, and pilot wings. And for $35 per month, a pair of rocket-engraved shot glasses. For $100 a month, you get membership in Max Fund's Inner Circle. It's a monthly culture club. Every month you get a new book, a new record, that sort of thing. And for $200 a month, free registration for Max Fun Con 2016. That remarkable event. It's kind of like kink camp, but for lovers of comedy and pop culture. So long story short, not only do you get the satisfaction, the fulfillment of feeling like you are indeed helping these wonderful shows continue to exist, uh, but you get to be a part of the Max Fun family when you become a member. And there's so much fun stuff that that comes with. So the Max Fun Drive of 2015 has started on March 16th today. It runs for two weeks. Be sure to check it out. Go over to MaximumFun.org donate and become a member or upgrade today. Now, let's get back to the stories. In a little bit, you will hear from the wonderful Selena Kopic telling a tale at the Risk Show in Los Angeles. But first, one more from that evening we've been listening to so far. It's James Judd at the Risk Live Show in New York. Storyteller is a regular on the fabulous podcast and live show Snap Judgment, which comes out of San Francisco, USA. He is going to be, I think, next week at the Brooklyn Academy of Music Opera House. Glorious place doing uh, the Snap Judgment show there. Please welcome the stage, James Judd. May 9th, May 9th, not next week. Hi, uh, I'm James, this is my first time at risk, thank you for having me. Um, so this story, I get it, it's fine. Um, this story is called My Blind Date with Nathan Lane. And I would appreciate it very, very much if you never spoke of this story. Don't talk about it, don't tell anybody about it, and if you're listening to this on the podcast, it's this does not leave this room. It's the first time I've ever told it, and um, zip. Okay. So at the end of the 1990s, I completely reinvented myself from a 
pretty alcoholic, mostly stoned all the time stand-up comic living in Los Angeles, to a mostly sober, sometimes stoned criminal defense attorney in small town uh, rural New Hampshire. As we all have done at some point in our lives, a transition. And um, despite the incredible new me, I just can't find my mate. And it's not because, I, I know if you want to picture me, if you need a visual, think Matlock, but gayer. And uh, I, I'm really trying to find my mate. And it's not that there aren't a lot of gay men in New Hampshire, it's just that almost all of them are married to women. Right? And I need a guy who's really outdoorsy. I want someone who likes to canoe and hike and go skiing. It'd be great if he was a vet because we're gonna have a renovated barn filled with rescue goats. <laughs> and we're gonna have two beagles named Cooper and Anderson. <laughs> Matching windbreakers, Tom Ford Cologne. It's gonna be great, right? But I just, where is he? I cannot find him. Well, my cousin Jackie calls. Jackie is like a quintessential New Yorker, a big hair, busy agenda, married to a sports writer. She's got a townhouse in Chelsea. She is living the dream. And she calls me and she says, get on a train right now, come to New York. You have been invited to a party tonight at Mark and Scott's clink. Well, Mark and Scott are Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. A uh, very sort of famous Broadway songwriting duo. They wrote Hairspray, and they are just generally top-shelfed A-list gays. Now, now, Jackie has been friends with Mark and Scott for decades, and I have known them through the years, just sort of peripherally from being around Jackie, but this is the first time I have ever been invited to their house. Oh my God, the new me is working. I am being invited to fabulous parties. I take a train, I get off at Penn Station, I go to the nearest Banana Republic, I hit that sale rack, I get like a pair of gray slacks and a, and a white shirt and a black v-neck sweater, you know, I mean it's, it's sort of basic 2001 gay, but it will do. <laughs> so as Jackie is leading us to Mark and Scott's apartment through Chelsea, she says, you know who Nathan Lane is, right? Well, of course I do. Everyone knows Nathan Lane is. I mean, he's famous, right? There are billboards of him in Times Square. She says, so the other afternoon, I was sitting around my living room with Mark and Scott and some of Nathan's friends, and we were all talking about how he really needs a boyfriend. And I said, how about my cousin James? And they said, well, uh, what does he look like? Who would play him in a movie? And I said, Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> But I said, Jackie, what are you talking about? I don't look anything like Matthew McConaughey. She said, well, it was the first name that came to my mind. So they said, come on, what does he really look like? She said, I said, he looks like Tom Hanks. And then they all started laughing. And just at that moment, John walked in the door. John is Jackie's husband. And they said, John, who does your cousin James look like? He said, Storm DeLuise. <laughs> And everyone was just falling over. They were laughing so hard and crying. Isn't that hilarious? Oh, great. That's, yeah, that's hysterical, right? So now I realize that not only have I not been invited to this party because of my fabulous new self, but I'm also the butt of an in-joke before I even walk in the door. And anyway, who thought this would be a good idea? I mean, does Nathan Lane like goats? <laughs> I would have run, you know, but we are already in the building and in a private elevator, which is whisking us to the party. 
And then Jackie says, but here's the thing. Nathan doesn't know anything about this. So you have to go up to him on your own and introduce yourself and strike up a conversation and try to make him like you. The elevator's doors open into this huge apartment. I mean, it is a huge apartment, and this, the, the party is in full swing. Patty Lupone is on a white couch holding court. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker is scooping up macaroni and cheese from the buffet table. Amy Sedaris is running around with cupcakes. And then Matthew Broderick catches my eye from across the room, and suddenly he starts coming right toward me, and I think, oh my God. We're about to become best friends. <laughs> and then he shakes a can of Miller Lite at me and he says, do you think there's any more beer? And I kind of look around. Is, is that meant for me? And I realize there are a number of tall men at the party all wearing gray slacks and white shirts and black v-neck sweaters from Banana Republic and they're all passing hors d'oeuvres. So I say to Matthew Broderick, um, I will check. <laughs> so I bring him a beer and then I spend like the next hour just, well, what was I gonna do, you know? I mean, say no, I'm not gonna do it anyway, so. So I'm leaning against this wall, and I have maybe two or three or four or five or six martinis, and a couple of these beautiful hand-rolled joints and like Japanese paper that they were passing around. It was great. And then Jackie comes along, and she grabs me by the elbow, and she says, there's Nathan, he's alone. Earn your invite. So Nathan is standing in the middle of the room. He's kind of leaning back on a couch. He's wearing a black suit. He's got his arms folded. He's staring at the ground. And I think, I really don't see this working. I try to imagine a snowshoeing together. I just think this is, I don't see it. But I thought, well, wasn't I just asking the universe for help? Maybe this is meant to be. So I go up to him and I say, hi, I'm, my name is James Judd, and I'm Jackie's cousin, and it's a thrill to meet you, and uh, blah, blah, blah. He goes, I'm Nathan, this, this. And then you know we fall silent. and. I say, so, um, how do you know our hosts? And he says, oh, I, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't really remember. I say, well, I remember, and it's kind of a funny story. Okay, I'm 19 years old, and I'm backpacking across Europe with my best friend, Chuck. And we don't really have very much money. We're on a very tight budget. And right away, things start to go wrong. We get lost. My wallet gets stolen. And in Barcelona, something flies in my eye and it swells up like a big tumor. (laughs) But I know that my cousin Jackie and her husband are on the Isle of Capri. And if we can get to them, I'm just sure that she's going to help us. Well, we do get to Capri and we find her. And she says, okay, you know, you can, you know, unroll your sleeping bags on the floor of the villa for a couple of nights, but you're going to have to leave immediately when Mark and Scott show up from New York because they are great artists and we have many, many things planned for their visit and we just can't have two poor, dirty college students hanging around. Have you uh, been to Capri, Nathan? No? Okay, so um, there's not really any beaches there. There's just these cliffs made out of lava, and they have sort of smooth areas, uh, smoothed out on them with circular areas, and you can't just take one. You have to own one. Well, luckily, Jackie has one to use for the summer, and she says we can go stay there uh, the next afternoon, but we're going to have to get up and leave as soon as Mark and Scott arrive. So we go and we're soaking up the healing rays of the sun there. And Chuck, who's much more, knows a lot more about things like fashion than I do, says, hey, 
isn't that Diane von Furstenberg? And I look up, and about 10 feet above us on one of those smoothed-out areas is this very striking woman with a big hat and glasses and a tiny bikini. And I say, well, I don't know. I'm not really sure who Diane von Furstenberg is. He says, yeah, I think that's her. And we look up at her, and right there, that woman, whoever she is, reaches her hand down between her legs and just yanks a tampon right out of her snatch. I barely stifle a scream. I mean, there are some things you just can't unsee. Well, it was ghastly. Well, it was just ghastly. And then Mark and Scott showed up. And that's how I met them. And then we had to leave. And now I'm here. (laughs) Do you like goats? I follow Nathan's eyes as he scans the room looking for help. And then I see Matthew Broderick across the room shaking a can at me. And Nathan says, I, uh, excuse me, I, uh, I have to, I go, oh, no, no, yeah, yeah, sure, no, yeah, no, go, 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 yeah, you know, I I gotta go get Matt another Bruce, so, um, you know, nice to meet you. Well, that was the last time I ever saw Nathan Lane. And I was never invited back to any of Mark and Scott's parties. Eventually, I met a guy from Puerto Rico, and we are muy bueno. (laughs) Still, I wonder if Nathan ever thinks about our mad brief encounter. I guess I'll have to wait to read about it in his memoir. Now, if you'll excuse me, I I have to go get Matthew Broderick another beer. Uh, I was a cater waiter for a long time after the state broke up, my sketch comedy group in the 90s. I had no idea what to do with myself. So I decided to do the most demeaning thing imaginable, uh, become everyone, the, the, the kind of a butler to super, super rich people. Lots of very famous people, lots of ultra rich people. And I think it was a few years into it where I really, really started to feel so demoralized that I started to just drink like crazy while these parties were happening. I remember once walking out onto the floor of the Metropolitan Art Museum, this huge row of cater waiters walking out to serve people like, you know, Diane von Furstenberg types. And as we're going through this little hallway corridor right before we're going to reach our tables, I am just doing this with the bottle of wine that I'm then going to pour at the table. But one night I was doing this wedding in the Hamptons and you know, sometimes you're working for people who are really quite sweet and gorgeous and fun and and, and it's all very like exciting to see how the other half lives. And then other times you're with people who are really kind of despicable, you know, stupid rich people and lots of weddings where it's clearly people, uh, you know, the man is not supposed to be marrying a woman, that sort of thing. 
So we were at my uh, this. Uh, I used to work for Glorious Food, which was the creme de la creme, and we were at this huge, super expensive, several million dollar wedding in the Hamptons. And you know, it was one of those things where they had all these gigantic tents on the beach, and. Uh, I get. I think they had Dom Perignon, whatever the most expensive champagne is. They had lots and lots of bottles of it, and there was this gorgeous black model. Uh, yeah, everyone was either an actor or a model, so I was crushing on other cater waiters every single night. And this guy and I just got into the habit of like joking around with each other the, the entire night. And he kept saying, wouldn't it be funny if we split one of these bottles of Dom Perignon? So we would, and then he'd be like, wouldn't it be funny if we had another one of these bottles of... <laughs> Until we were both like so kind of unable to be on the floor serving people that I was like, wouldn't it be funny if we went behind the tent and I just blew you in the bushes? (laughs) I did. It was wonderful. But I didn't get very Far from the bushes. I mean, the whole blowing thing was terrific. It was one of the highlights of my catering career, but it was soon after followed by lots of vomiting and me begging other cater waiters to kind of hide me in a car and get me back to New York City without the company finding out that I had kind of collapsed and died in the bushes. Uh, and then, of course, throwing out, out, the, out the windows of the car, which came into a fall upon the other caterers. It was a very exciting career. Um, <laughs> let me bring our next storyteller to the stage. <laughs> Another bucket for Monsieur. And perhaps a hose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have been awake since uh, 4.45 a.m. Eastern time. Yeah, a long day, but it's so great to be here. You guys are the tits. Yeah. All right. Yeah, tits are pretty dope, even the eight cups. Although these look like beer. I wore pillows for the big show. Okay. (laughs) So um, my sophomore, junior, and senior years of high school, I was bullied uh, relentlessly by a guy in my grade named Dave. It takes a pretty special type of guy to bully, A, a girl, and B, a girl for three years. I mean, that's a real commitment, you know? Real fucking sociopath. He was unrelenting in his attention to me. Uh, It was three years of daily hell that I reported to five days a week. And, And I don't quite know why it was me. I don't know if it was proximity. I don't know if it was because I never put up a fight. I thought that if I didn't fight back, maybe he would stop. But no, not fighting back actually escalated it. 
and and it, it it got worse over the years. Um, it was he would smash my mailbox constantly. And I grew up in suburban Boston. When you have like a mailbox on a post at the end of your driveway, he would smash my mailbox constantly. He would sometimes throw bags of vomit on my mailbox. Some yeah, kind of gross. Uh, sometimes bags of bleach, which would then kill all my dad's plants. I remember junior year, I was at a party with some friends, and I jokingly posed for a photo with a guy, and in the photo, we were buddies, we are just sort of mugging, and I was leaning in for to kiss this guy as a joke, and he jokingly pulled away. Like, it was just a funny picture. And Dave got his hands on the negative, blew it up to eight and a half by 11, made copies of it, and put it all over my high school, and mostly in the glass awards cases. So it like can't come out. So for weeks, it was just up at school. And everyone was like, that's weird. Um, And I remember my sister Laurel came to visit at school and saw it. And I just felt like I was just stewing in my own shame. I was like, yeah, this is my day to day. Um, And senior year, Super Bowl Sunday, Dave hosted a big party of all the guys in my high, in my graduating class, which is pretty small. It was like the popular guys, so it was like 20 guys. And they all watched the Super Bowl at Dave's house, and then they drove to my house where they doused my um, mailbox in gasoline, lit it on fire, and they all watched it burn. Yeah. And you thought your high school time sucked. Try me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was just it was just shitty every fucking day. It sucked. I hated it so much it, it was just really just a daily daily terror and but it was too bad because Dave was very popular And he used to throw a lot of parties because his parents were done raising kids. So um, So he would throw a lot of parties. So he was very cool So I didn't want him to hate me more than he already did like I was just, I played it very timid because he was just a kind of a cool guy around and I was just I was just filled with shame about it you know I mean and my parents kind of were just bewildered about what was going on and rather than my parents saying like what's up with this sociopath guy my parents would ask me like what are you doing that's making this happen which like talk about a recipe for a lifelong therapy you know <laughs> I, and what was I doing I don't know, having the audacity to have some fucking opinions. I don't know, making jokes, like being an outspoken girl who kind of like was funny and a little bit loud, I guess. Um, It was just pretty absurd. So I literally like graduation day at my school, everyone wears like white dresses and the guys wear tuxes with white jackets and this big graduation on the town green. And graduation day was to this day one of the best days of my life because I'd never have to see any of these fucking assholes ever again. Oh, my God. We had one of those dumb trips after graduation where, like, the fucking PTA basically, like, kidnaps you so you don't, like, get drunk and wrap your car around a tree, you know, and they're like, activities all night! Um, So we went to one of those, and I spent that entire night when we were sort of stuck all together as a class, I spent that entire night just grinning ear to ear, chain-smoking cigarettes, because, like, fuck it, you already gave me my diploma. You can't kick me out now, asswipes. And telling anyone who would listen to have a nice life, because I'd never see him again. And they were all like, oh, come on, Selena. We'll see each other again. And I was like, no, no, no. You just wait and see. You'll never fucking see me again. Trust me. Like, I am done here, assholes. Good luck. See you in hell. Uh, And if, when this becomes a podcast, if anyone from my high school is listening, ah, yeah, you never fucking saw me again. Fuck you. (laughs) 
So I went off to Hamilton College in upstate New York. God bless it. Go Continentals. And I picked, I picked Hamilton because no one from my high school was going there. Literally, that was the only reason I went to Hamilton. Great school, but like mostly because no one from my high school was going there. And I loved Hamilton. Oh, I had such a blast. You know, great times. And my freshman year, you know, you're assigned to random roommates. So I was assigned to these two gals, Charlotte and Jesse. Cool ladies. Awesome. So we start hanging out right away freshman year. And I am really open-hearted with women. I, I'm just very open. My life is an open book. I share, you know, um, super sweet. So, you know, those first couple of weeks, we're just all talking about where we came from, hometowns, high school, growing up. And I was very candid with Charlotte and Jesse. I was like, I told them all about Dave. I told them all about the terrible bullying. I was like, I'm so thrilled to be here. Fresh start. You know, I'm, I'm so excited. And so we all started doing Sorority Rush. And I joined the acapella group on campus. And I was writing for the newspaper. Like, I just really hit the ground running. And we're all rushing sororities, and Charlotte got a bid to her preferred house, and I got a bid to my preferred house, and Jessie did not get a bid anywhere. Uh, and yeah, and she, I mean, it was too bad. Like, I, I, my heart really went out to her when that happened, because she was a funny gal. She had a wicked sense of humor. We would always joke around. Um, but she'd rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and she'd really alienated a lot of people in our dorm. And so I would always try to include her in stuff, but... You know, she'd, she'd sort of made her own bed a little bit. But I would always try to take her under my wing, bring her to parties, whatever. So, you know, spring of freshman year in college, I'm busy pledging ATX. And Charlotte's busy pledging KDO. And Jessie is spending a lot of time in our room alone. And she goes to my high school yearbook, which is on my desk, and she finds Dave. She finds the exact spelling of his last name. And then she finds him on AOL Instant Messenger. Because it was 1999, and that was, you know, where the kids hung out. And she then befriends him. Yeah, like, single white female. Um, She befriends him, and she establishes that she is my roommate in college, and she starts feeding him all these lies. She tells him that I couldn't get a bid to any sorority, but she did. She tells him that everyone in our dorm hates Selena, that I have no friends, that I'm having a terrible time at college, that I fucked the entire hockey team, like... All this stuff that is about her, none of which is about me. And I don't, I don't know any of this is happening. I'm too busy doing all this like pledging shit and drinking in the woods. So I don't even know what's going on until the very end of freshman year, a mutual friend approaches me. We're down at the bar downtown and she's like, Selena, I just want you to know, um, you know, Jesse befriended Dave on AOL and she's feeding him all this stuff. And I was just like, what? I was so stunned and upset Especially because, like, I'd worked so fucking hard to be away from all of that. And I was very drunk. So I hop on the Jitney, which is like the shuttle bus, back to campus. I storm into my room. And I was going to fucking let her have it. Because you know what? I laid down and took it in high school. And it didn't fucking help anyway. So, like, everyone's going to hate you anyway. You slice it. Fuck it. Go down swinging. So I just fucking bust in. And Jesse's there hanging out with a bunch of hockey players. Of course. (laughs) And I was just like, I know that you fucking befriended Dave on AOL Instant Messenger. Are you fucking kidding me? And I just like teed off. I was like, everyone in this dorm hates you. You fucking lie through your teeth, you dumb cunt. I am your only friend. I have defended you to everyone. And this is how you treat me? Like, do you know how hard I work to get the fuck away from my shitty hometown? Like, this guy bullied the fuck out of me for three years and you pull me back into this? Fuck you. And she storms out crying. And I, I am one, I love the dramatic. I turn to the two hockey players, I sit on my desk, I light a cigarette, and I'm like, 
I'm sorry you had to see that. (laughs) They were fucking terrified. (laughs) I ended up avoiding her for the remainder of our college time. I wish her all the best. Um, (laughs) um, One year after college was my high school reunion. And I went to my high school reunion because Hamilton was such an amazing time for me. And it really turned my life around. So I was, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to my high school reunion. You know, like I'm feeling great about my life. I'm psyched. So I did go to my high school reunion um, the first year out of college. So it was the five-year high school reunion. And who's there but my high school bully, Dave. Hey, hanging out, being fat, living local. Yeah. And, you know, we all sort of mingle around. I'm hanging out with a handful of people from my high school who are nice. And Dave approaches me with two shots, and he puts them on the bar in front of me, and he goes, Hey, Selena, all that stuff from high school, water under the bridge. <laughs> uh, in my head, I was like, Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, yeah, you tortured me for fucking three years of daily hell, but these shots are well booze. Oh, yeah really wipes the slate, my friend. So I picked up one of the shots, and I was like, yeah, buddy, yeah, you gave my mom a fucking nervous breakdown, but tabula rasa! (laughs) I put it back, I slam it down, and I walked away, and I left the reunion. And I'll tell you the truth, my mom never had a nervous breakdown. (laughs) But I hope that Dave fucking loses sleep over it. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Phantom Planet behind me now. We have a ton of live shows coming up in New York on March 26th. We're at the pit with Ophira Eisenberg, Chris Gethard, Christian Finnegan, and more. On the 29th of March, we're in Portland. On the 31st of March, we're in L.A. at the Nerdist Showroom. Sean Patton will be there, Adam Grotman, and others. On the 9th of April, we are in Detroit, and in fact, we're still taking pitches for that. So if you live in Detroit, pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. The theme that night is abnormal. And then on the 11th of April, we're in Chicago. The theme that night is freaky. Pitch us Detroit and Chicago. Those shows are coming soon. And don't forget, it will mean the world to us, folks, if you get on over 
to MaximumFun.org. Press the Donate button and check out Max Fun Drive 2015. So many fun prizes, such good shows. It really does help us tremendously. The support that people show during the Fun Drive once a year. There's only two weeks to get on in there and make it happen. Don't forget, there's a couple of bonus episodes of Risk that you'll get for your becoming a new member or upgrading your membership. That's all at MaximumFun.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Max Fun Drive!